You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. So you've scaled your B2B content creation by building an in-house team and working with partners that can add bandwidth and expertise. You've got a full repository of content. You have an editorial calendar. This is awesome. But now you have a new problem. That content needs to be maintained and updated for brand standards, for product changes, and especially if you're in certain industries, compliance regulations. And getting the resources to maintain all that content is a challenge because many organizations have trouble recognizing the value of their content in the first place. No, no, I mean, if you think of the size and scope of content in the enterprise, I mean, one of the challenges that we discovered, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, two years ago, was when you talk about content in the business, it's not really widely understood what the value of it is. Because in most cases, like if I, if I say, look, I can help you save money in your content creation, an answer that we get back more often than not is, cool, show me where in my budget I'm spending money on content, and then we can talk about it. And realistically, unless you're outsourcing all of your content creation to agencies, most of your content comes by way of employees. Over the course of a day, it's the byproduct of what we do for our job. So there isn't just a line item that says content with a bucket of money next to it. So you have to kind of back into content as an asset to your business. That's Christopher Willis from Acrolinks. His company software can help brands create and maintain content at scale. On this episode of BDB Nation, Christopher and I talk about content, pipeline, personal connections in B2B marketing, and more. All right, Christopher Willis, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. I am Chris Willis. I am the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Pipeline Officer of a company called Acrolinks. I'm based in Massachusetts, but our headquarters is in Berlin, Germany. There's a couple of things that are going to be of interest to marketers about Acrolinks, uh, whether they're familiar with the company or not. So one is that the company's software helps companies with their brand and messaging. And then the other thing that is crucial to marketers about your role is your job creating demand for your product. So why don't we start with the product? How does it help marketers with their messaging and branding? Okay, so what we do, our product is an AI-powered platform that helps improve the quality, fitness, and impact of content. So it starts with that quality piece, uh, allowing, enabling writers at scale across an organization to create content aligned with a common guideline set. And it's not just grammar and spelling. It's clarity, consistency, character, it's terminology, it's inclusive language, tone of voice, style guidelines um, that make that content yours. So from a marketing standpoint, um, the first thing that I do when I enter a business, the first thing I did when I got here to Acrolinks was define our voice that we're going to go forward with, um, tie that to the brand that we're trying to exude in the marketplace. And that's great. You know, now I understand the words that we use, the the voice that we say them in, um, the style and the, the conversational tone that we want. Uh, all of that's great. How do I now get my organization to follow this? And that's where we come in. Hackerlinks learns all those guidelines. It takes all that information right off my whiteboard, makes it actionable. And then at the earliest stages of creation, aligns content with those guidelines. 
So think in terms of in my last company, uh, we were a testing company. We were a mobile cloud test software company and we didn't use the word test. It's difficult for me to explain what we did without using the word test, but we were selling to DevOps and we didn't want to say test, we wanted to say quality. You can imagine that every piece of content that was submitted through editorial included the word test where we wanted it to say quality. That's the type of guideline that you build into Acrylix. You said test. Did you mean quality? We like to say quality and be able to change that. Or even better, um, we all spell the name of the company correctly. In all cases, no matter how it's spelled or abbreviated, which is fine if you're Acrolinks, we only have one way to say it and spell it. But if you're American Express, is it American Express? Is it Amex? Is it AE? Is it American Express first and then Amex after? How do we build that rule? And if you understand the concept of that, then you understand the concept of, of guidelines. But taking it further, so now you've created this high quality content, and that's great. You have in a, a corpus now of, of content that aligns around this, this guideline set that you've created. As I mentioned, people like me and my team create that set of guidelines. We think that we know what our audiences want to hear, how they want to hear it, the voice they want to hear it in. We think we're good at this, but are we? So the byproduct of Acrolinks is that every piece of content has a score, and that score represents the alignment to the guidelines. And so if you have an Acrolinks 90 piece of content, then it kind of means this is exactly what you're trying to create. This is on tone, on voice, uh, clear, consistent, designed for the audience and the education level there that they have. All of this is fantastic. And now I take that content and put it out into the world. And it tanks, does nothing, has zero impact. Um, Acrolinks must be broken because it says it's good. No, you did it wrong. Like you, don't, you, you don't have the correct guidelines. And I think as, as our product was evolving, we were starting to see this come to play more where there is a disconnect between Acrolink score and, and general performance, more anecdotally, um, no way to see the direct connection until now. Um, over the course of the last year, we've added the ability to integrate with that consumption analytic and be able to see that an Acrolink's 90 piece of content is performing like this, either well or poorly. And if you can do that, then can't you identify why content is performing beyond just the topic? Um, how are clarity and consistency driving consumption? And if you can know that, can you create that model and then roll it over all the content in your ecosystem and be able to deliver more business impact as a result of the content that you're creating and you already own. And that's really where we live right now is in this space of content impact. So creating, beyond just creating content that's less embarrassing to the business, high quality content, uh, it's, it's about taking that content and helping that content achieve and exceed its business goals. So Mike, you're gonna say, I don't really know what you're talking about. What do you mean? I can give you an example. Thanks for asking. Um, I can just do this by myself. <laughs> um, but, but so what, what, what I mean is, if I'm sitting down with somebody in a digital team, what do you have for content? What are you creating? And maybe the answer is we have a blog. Great. Why are you, why do you have a blog? Why are you writing blog content? Because my boss hired me to write blog content. Nope. Bad answer. Try again. Um, we're trying to 
be identified in the world for the cool concepts that we have. So I'm hearing findability. Um, and we have conversion points in our blog where we're trying to drive some signups. Okay, I'm hearing leads. Um, so how are you measuring the success of this content? Okay, well, in lead creation. Interesting. Um, how are you doing from a conversion standpoint right now? Well, it's a struggle. And that's everybody's answer. It's good, but it could always be better. Or it's terrible and it could be better. But either way, it could always be better. So what if we could help you find the content that's converting at the highest rate, build a model around that content, and be able to make more content feel like that content? What if we could increase your overall conversion rate through creating more impactful content and drive actual revenue to your business? And while this sounds hypothetical, we have very large customers right now that are speaking publicly about their ability to drive revenue through the content they're creating. And I mean, it's amazing to see. I wish they would connect it back to us in all cases and in all cases they don't, it publicly, I mean. Um, but the idea of being able to create a, a guideline set that creates more impactful content takes this from being just this quality play of we're going to create better content, we're going to align brand across the business to we're going to make sure that we're aligning the correct brand to drive the business we're trying to achieve and directly impact the company's top line. One of the things that I think of when you lay it out like that is the challenges of scaling content creation. In your initial example there, you kind of talked about, well, a small company you have a content strategist or you have somebody who's, you know, the brand police who might be able to review every piece of content or most piece of content and make sure it all works. But then if your content and your other marketing is working and the company grows and you're hiring people in other regions and your content team expands, you're creating for multiple formats, you still can't run it all by one brand person, right? So. No, no I mean, if you think of the size and scope of, content in the enterprise. I mean, one of the challenges that we discovered, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, two years ago, was when you talk about content in the business, it's not really widely understood what the value of it is. Because in most cases, like if I, if I say, look, I can help you save money in your content creation, an answer that we get back more often than not is, cool, show me where in my budget I'm spending money on content, and then we can talk about it. And realistically, unless you're outsourcing all of your content creation to agencies, most of your content comes by way of employees. Over the course of a day, it's the byproduct of what we do for our job. So there isn't just a line item that says content with a bucket of money next to it. So you have to kind of back into content as an asset to your business. And if you think of a company the size of a Microsoft, for instance, one subdomain on one of their websites might have 50,000, 100,000 pages. In their case, the, their support portal has 7.5 million pages. And you don't think about that from a value standpoint until you do. Assign any dollar amount to how much it costs to create a single page of content for that website, any dollar amount. We think we know what it is. We estimate based on you know, the development of the content, the editorial process that goes along with it, any changes that are made to it, any legal review that's required. It's probably about $1,000 a page, but argue with me. Tell me it's 500. It really doesn't matter. You're still looking at a 
huge, huge expense to create that asset. And to your point, what are you doing from a maintenance standpoint? How much of that are you touching? If you're in a regulated industry, if you're a financial services company, how, how are you checking from compliance standpoint, changing compliance rules, regulatory rules? Are you updating this content? Probably, probably not. And the answer from most of our customers is you know, about 10%. We're getting to about 10%. So can you automate that at that scale? Can you, can you build a process by which you can rip through every piece of content that you have and maintain that governance across everything? I mean, that's one of the things that we do is content at scale, helping companies to ensure that they are maintaining all of that content as they continually add new content to it. And going back to marketers and brand, I mean, we go through brand refreshes all the time. I was just thinking that. <laughs> so, so um, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. So just yeah. a simple thing, like we're going to change the tagline. Okay. Well, that, the tagline is everywhere. A, yep. do I know where it is? Can I even find it? Do I know where to go to look for it in every document that, that it's in? And, and B, even if I could, what, what, do I, what do I do about that? Because that's a monumental Herculean task to go make those changes. But beyond that, I mean, the question, conversation that I've had with a number of brand owners is, so you go through your rebrand and the question comes three months after from your CEO. How are we doing? How are we doing switching over? Um, I guess I'll go pull some content from multiple departments and eyeball it, see how we're doing. We'll come back to you. Well, what if you had Acrolinks, a tool that can go through and read all of your content, see alignment to your objectives, to those guidelines that you've set from a brand standpoint, and provide you with a, a quantitative score of alignment. Here's where we were on day one after we rebranded. Re Here's where we are on day 30. Here's where we are on day 60. On day 60, we are in alignment because you can't not be because any new content that's being created is running through these filters and your writers are being guided to be on brand. It's, it's a function of the product. So now we're connected. Now we're aligned. Now we're on brand. And then on day 62, we change something like the tagline, who cares? Because our writers are using a product that tells them what to do. So if I type, you know, if the tagline was um, cool things happen last week and I go to type cool things happen because I know that's the tagline, it's gonna catch it and say, we changed that. Now it's awesome, things happen. Oh, fantastic, good, change made. And I'm still 100% connected to my brand. I'm still, on, I'm still aligned. And if you that, try to do that manually, the brand reef there, you will miss something. Absolutely. Right? There are always like people create content and have from the beginning, this isn't a new thing. And you forget about it until the person goes and sends an email with that template. Mm -hmm. And then, right. And then everybody goes, Oh, that that's an old one. Well, if it's an old one, it should have been deleted. Why, if it's why there, is it available to me if it's yeah. an old one? And it's because, again, you're only covering 10% from a maintenance standpoint, 10% of your content in your repository. And the rest of it's just sitting there filled with risk. And risk is different. Like sending out the wrong template, probably not a huge issue. Sending out the wrong legal language on the bottom of a pharmaceutical document, yikes, big issue. Yep. 
we have financial services customers that talk about how they're the people that keep everybody out of jail. And they're kidding, but not really. Like maybe it's not a jail situation, but it is, a, a, there are legal ramifications to the, to the content they create. And if they're not maintaining that content, that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. Pharmaceutical, financial services, healthcare, the big sort of three, a uh, little bit of education too. Even, even uh, like medical devices, like think yep. in terms of the product manual that accompanies a laser, laser surgical device. That product manual is used by doctors probably live during surgery. And if it's not clear and consistent, if the terminology isn't correct, people could be hurt. Um, And that, I mean, that's a very real case. One of our customers says that all the time. Um, They talk about how the use of our product is the difference between life and death to people on the surgical table. Because if, if the doctor can't follow the the directions, that's, that's a challenge that they'd prefer not to have. Yep. You don't want to be on hold with the help desk during surgery. No, you really don't. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) We often talk about the evolution of marketing from the leads and the MQLs to pipeline and revenue goals. You use chief pipeline officer as part of your title. Uh, It's right there on LinkedIn. Have you experienced this evolution in your career? What how did the title come about? Was this your idea? Like- <laughs> it, was, it was not actually. Um, I, was, I was placed in that role uh, in 2020. Um, it is, it's an interesting thing, and I don't think it would work everywhere. I think it's, it's it, I know of three people with that title in the world right now, and I'm one of them. And it takes a special organization because there has to be a very positive relationship between sales and marketing. And it makes sense that it is the marketing person that holds it because I have levers that I can use in the marketing organization to directly impact pipeline. Um, Essentially what that part of my job is, is ensuring that quarter plus one and quarter plus two are healthy while our Chief Revenue Officer focuses on closing business. He's working with his team to get this quarter done wherever we are. And I mean, he's also infinitely concerned with pipeline, but can be more engaged on a day-to-day basis with the things that move the needle in right now Q2, while I am infinitely focused on the rest of the future. I think in terms of rolling four quarters forward, that's the period I'm looking at from a new logo pipeline standpoint, I'm looking at a rolling two quarters forward for expansion. It's all based on conversion rates and sales cycle time. And I am largely measured in sales velocity. So sales velocity being a function of the number of opportunities entering a a pipeline period of four quarters times the average deal size times our win rate, all divided by the average sales cycle length. And that provides a number, a numeric value, a dollar value. And I don't so much care what the dollar value is. I care about the direction the dollar value is going in. I'm looking to see that go up over time. I'm looking to see our team, my marketing team, providing more opportunities into the pipeline. So are we generating leads that are turning into MQLs that are getting converted by the BDR organization? So that's a thing that I can control. That's a, a lever that I have. From an average deal size standpoint, product marketing, are we delivering things to the sales organization that increase our value? So ROI tools, better value messaging, better product from a product launch standpoint. 
from a win rate, that's really helping the salespeople to execute. That falls largely inside sales, but it's also things that we're influencing further into the funnel from campaign standpoint, from live event standpoint that are driving these deals to close. Uh, and then all of that ties into our ability to speed up that sales cycle. And when you sell to the largest enterprises in the world, that's a tough one because, you know, you've got at least three months of worth of negotiation to go through when you reach procurement and InfoSec. So the, the rest of that time period is about trying to shrink the amount of time it takes to get from the deal, the, the initial lead into an opportunity. And then through the essentially the beginning of the, the beginning stages of that pipeline, that funnel. You and I were joking uh, right before we hit record about using Zoom, which we're doing now, and how if you haven't figured it out by now, you may never figure it out, um, which got me thinking about all the change of the past two years. You just mentioned events in your answer to that question. What are the important lessons about marketing and about pipeline, since you just laid it out so eloquently, that you've learned over the past two years? Personal connection still matters a lot. So one of our highest converting tactics continues to be bringing people together to talk about their problems. It's not salesy. It's not bringing them in and talking at them. We do have webinars just like everybody else does. It's, 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 they're great educational thought leadership, but people want to talk to other people like them. And giving them that forum, introducing them to people like them has been really important over the course of the last two and a half years. Um, we're doing what we call wine and wisdom, and we ship you out a, a bottle of wine at the beginning, the beginning of this process. Uh, it was three bottles of wine and a pound and a half of cheese. It wasn't just that it was expensive. I mean, it was, but it was too much. Like people would just get hammered um, and then just eat a bunch of cheese. But now we're, we're we're at a bottle of wine. Um, we have, uh, sometimes we have somebody come in to talk about the wine. Sometimes we don't, but it's about bringing these people together and letting them talk about their challenges. And th the learning is, you know, you can sell to somebody later, but provide that kind of human connection in a world where that's a thing that we're lacking right now. People, people want to be introduced to people. Where do you go as an adult during a pandemic to make a new friend? Um, to, to network about your job, um, to talk about your, your, your work problems. You, you don't. You sit at your desk in your house and then you go and play with your dog. Um, and that, I mean, that's also really fun. But that type of connection that we can provide has been, I mean, valuable to us from a pipeline creation standpoint, but valuable to our audience as well. Um, and we're, I mean, it feels to the people that work in my organization like we've, We've done it to death, but we don't invite people twice. Um, so for everybody that comes, it's a new experience and it's, it's a good experience for them. As an introvert, I find some of those in-person social things exhausting, <laughs> but even I think a lot of, even other introverts, it's, there was a point over the past years, it was like, okay. I, if I need social interaction, then everybody must need it, right? Like, <laughs> everybody needs it now. Yep. What is your favorite tool? What is the thing that you can't work without? Uh, you can't use Acrolinks for this one. That's too easy. Uh, and you sure. can't use your phone unless you're citing a specific app. But what is the tool that if you don't have your pro productivity was screeched to a halt? So, you know, I'll tell you, over the course of the last couple of years, 
it's really become Canva. Um, and I mean, you think, of, I, you know, I, I come from a design background and um, I, I can use Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign and all of those tools, but I don't have a team full of people that can. And moreover, I also don't want to pay the price for those products for an entire team, um, even if they could use it. And so these folks that, that work for me and myself that are not necessarily creative by trade uh, are able to develop the content that we use from landing pages to banner ads to whatever we need visually just on their own. And that's been huge for us um, over the course of, like I said, the last two years, um, the ability to be productive um, as a relatively small team as we grow um, across the board, everybody is contributing from a, from both a, a functional and a creative standpoint. And I mean, I think that what they've done and what they continue to do with products like Canva, is just phenomenal. I don't, yeah, work Canva and I don't have stock in them, but I just think they're great. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing that more and more actually in response to that question, because, um, you know, there are things where it certainly pays to have a professional designer. You mm -hmm. are, redoing your brand and you're, or you're doing a big campaign, but there are a hundred little things. You don't want to take the designer's time and attention away from the big thing, or you just need to fix a little thing or throw a little something together. And the tools to do that, like you said, have come a long way because to license the full suite of creative software for that seems a bit overkill. It, it um, is it's expensive. Yeah. And I mean, we have a design team that did all of our brand work. It gave us all the components. So now it's about being able to reuse that. And if I have to open up, I mean, not even me because I'm trained on it, but if somebody that's not trained on it needs to figure out how to open up Photoshop or InDesign or any of those products and try and move things around and mess with things and create something new, it's a non-starter. But with a, with a product like Canva, you you're up, off to the races. Like you have your pieces and we have them all uploaded and you go and you create your assets and you run with them. And now you're completely productive, whether it's creating an email template or landing page or whatever. Yeah. That speaks to scalability again, right back where yep. we started. Absolutely. So, all right. Christopher Willis of AcroLinks. Thanks for appearing on B2B Nation. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Christopher Willis of Acrolinks for appearing on the show. You can subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple, Google, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Thanks to Amy Dunn and KJ Pace and the Technology Advice crew. Mnemonics in the Guild wrote our theme song. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation.